there, home. Turn our attention to the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 8 this morning, beginning at verse 12. This passage continues um, Jesus' interaction and his teaching at the Feast of Booths that we began to look at last week. This is what Jesus states. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. We're going to focus our attention this morning on this phrase that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We'll spend most of our time on the first part of that phrase, and then we'll work through the rest of them. Join with me in prayer. Lord, would you teach us by your word? Would you teach us what that it means that you are the light of life, and that we would know this, believe it, that we would have it, and that it would shine forth through us for your glory to the ends of the earth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The story is told of an older fish who was swimming downstream, and as he was swimming downstream, he passed two younger fish who were swimming upstream. The older fish says to the two younger fish, Morning, boys. How's the water? To which the younger fish respond, What's water? What's water? You see, when you swim in water, and all that you have known, and all that you've experienced, that becomes your context of reality. That is just simply what is. That is the world. That is what is real. That is all that you have known. And you have no concept like these fish. There's no concept of the water in which these fish live, move, and have their being. And so the old fish could come to them and say, well, let me explain to you what water is, boys. Water is what surrounds you. Water is the thing that gives you health. Water provides your buoyancy. Well, what's buoyancy? Water is there so that you can, you can swim in three directions. You can go up, down, left, right, forward, backwards. Water allows for this. Water is, is what, regulates, what regulates your body, body temperature. temperature. And if he was really good at explaining this, these young fish would have a conceptual understanding. They might be warned that there's good water and that there's bad water and to look for good water. But everything that would be said to them would be understood within their context of reality. It would be understood from the basis and the experience of the water in which they swim. The Word of God, Scripture, gives us an alternate reality. It gives us the true reality. It gives us the true context of reality, explains to us what is the true waters in which we swim. However, we don't experience it that way. All that scripture teaches about this true reality 
comes to us and is understood and is experienced in the water in which we swim. It is experienced in our own context of reality. Indeed, Scripture recognizes this about the way that we understand the Word of God. 1 Corinthians says that we see in a mirror dimly, but when Christ returns, we will see as one face to face. That we see dimly. That the reality that God gives us in His Word is something that comes through our experience. And it describes a reality that none of us have fully known or fully experienced. For more than the last 300 years, Western Christianity has been interpreted, has been experienced through the waters of Western society, through, through the waters of Western thought, Western civilization, Western values, going all the way back to the Greek philosophers and their theories on logic between Socrates and Plato and, and the Epicureans and others who were there, continued through you know, Descartes, Hume, Locke, a couple hundred years ago. And that has become the water that has shaped and formed our culture and the water through which our Christianity is believed, lived, understood, and experienced. And into that reality for us, and a slightly different set of water for the Jews, Jesus steps in and he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What exactly is he claiming when he says that he is the light of the world? Let's understand what's going on here in this, understand what's going on here in this passage. The text tells us just a few verses later, in verse 20, that Jesus spoke these words in the treasury. That's the location that he is in the temple. And it says, again, Jesus spoke to them. What is the significance of again? Is that it is continuing the discourse that he began that we saw last week about the Feast of Booths when he said, if anyone is thirsty, come to me, and out of him, whoever believes in me, out of him will flow rivers of living water. Same conversation continuing later on in the day. Again, Jesus speaks to them. And he is doing so from the treasury of the temple. This location is significant. The treasury was also known as the court of women. It's this large area, um, this large area here. And it was the busiest place in the temple. It was the busiest part of the temple. It was surrounded by um, 13 trumpets and treasure chests. They were called trumpets, but 13 places for designated giving. So the people, when they were giving or if they were buying sacrifices, they would come into the temple, and this is where they would do this, in the treasury or in the court of women. And as they would do this, giving was a very, very public act. It's only in recent uh, society when you could start to write checks, did giving, and let alone electronic giving and electronic finances, did giving become this private matter. Giving was always an inherently public act of worship. Particularly because if you went to the temple, you brought bags of coin, and you dropped your bags of coin down the metal trumpet, which would make a noise, and everybody could hear it. It was inherently a public act. And if you were offering a sacrifice, you would have animals going along with you, and everyone could know if it was the best of your flock or not. Giving was always public. And so in the treasury, as people gathered together, there were two trumpets that were there to pay, that you would give two days' wages for. And that was to pay for the upkeep of the temple. There were two more that where you would pay for the offerings for pigeons or other sorts of purification rites to buy the supply for. 
The fifth trumpet was there, and that was present so that you could buy wood for sacrifices in order to offer your sacrifices. And then the sixth to thirteenth trumpet were there for love offerings or undesignated giving. Because of this function and because of its location entering into the altar, this was heavily, heavily traveled. During the Feast of Booze, which is the time when Jesus is interacting here, there were two great ceremonies that occurred at the Feast of Booths. One of those was the water ceremony, which we examined last week, and the significance of Jesus saying, if anyone thirsts, come to me, that he is the living water. The other ceremony that was, that was celebrated at the Feast of Booze was the light ceremony, also known as the illumination of the temple. And so what would happen is that in the treasury, this area of the temple, on a nightly basis, there was this spectacular display. And remember, the Feast of Booze was the season of joy and gladness. It was the greatest, the, the most joyful feast. Everyone would be out in their tents and tabernacles sent throughout the city. And every night, there would be the illumination of the temple. What happened was that there would be these candelabras, four giant candelabras set up around the treasury, set up around the court of women. Some uh, records say that these candelabras were as tall as the highest walls of the temple. And at the top of these columns were these massive bowls so that the wicks could come out to, to light these torches. Each of the bowls held 17 gallons of oil. And so, on a daily basis, uh, the young... Strong priests would put a ladder against the candelabra. They would climb to the top of it with 17 gallons of oil. They would light these 17, they would put these 17 gallons of oil on there. And at a nightly ceremony, they would light all of these torches. The temple was sitting on the highest point in Jerusalem. Everybody out in their, set up in their tents, could see the temple being lit from afar. They could see it from all over the city. The Mishnah, which is the record of Jewish uh, oral tradition, records that at the Feast of Booze and the Illumination, what happened was that men of piety and good works would dance before them with burning torches in their own hands, singing songs and praises in countless Levites, that would be the priests, played on harps, lyres, cymbals, and trumpets, instruments, and music. And the party continued all night long. They would continue this. They would dance until dawn. It was this exotic festival that occurred and was symbolized by the lighting and the great illumination of the temple. Now, what was the significance of the lights? Well, certainly throughout Scripture, many places, um, God is celebrated as light himself. And so they're certainly celebrating that truth and reality, or that truth and the reality that God is light. But in particular, what the lighting of the temple symbolized was something called the Shekinah glory. And it symbolized three aspects of the Shekinah glory. That the the glory of God, the light, is that which provides a path and a light in the wilderness. It provides protection, and it also symbolizes the very presence of God. But it was the light that provided the path in the wilderness. Scripture tells us that in Numbers chapter 9... What happened was that after God rescued the people of Israel out of Egypt, is that he began to lead them by a pillar of fire at night and a cloud during the daytime. And Numbers tells us how this light, this fire, guided, provided the path for people to follow. The path to lead them into 
the promised land, the path to a better life, the path to knowledge and truth. And what happens was this. It says, on that day, on the day the tabernacle was all set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. At evening, it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, and that the people of Israel set out, and in that place where the cloud settled down, where it settled down, there the people of Israel camped. As the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out, and at the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. And so what this represented was that the way that the fire worked, and the Numbers 14 goes on and described, that if the fire didn't move, they would stay there. And it says if, they stayed, if he stayed there a day, they would stay there a day. But if it stayed there for several months, they would camp there for several months. When it moved, they moved. When it did not move, they did not move. It's a great picture of what it means to submit your life to God. To say that he is the boss. That he is the light. That he is the path. That where he goes, you go. That you don't go until he goes. And if he doesn't go there, you don't go there. But it symbolized the light that God provided, that he was the pathway to knowledge and truth and the pathway to a better life, and that the fire was the one that guided them. It also was a symbol, as developed in Isaiah chapter 49, that the light that God provided was not just simply a pathway for the Jews, but for the entire world. God says through Isaiah, verse chapter 49, is it too It is too light a thing that you should be my servant. If it weren't enough that I made you my servant, I will make you as a light for the nations that salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That this light was to provide salvation to the peoples of the nation. So as the temple was illuminated at night, sitting on top of this hill in Jerusalem, as everyone is camped out in their tents around the city, everyone can see this light from great distances of afar, symbolizing that God is the light of their path and that God is also the light that is there to bring salvation to the nations. So the light symbolized the path that God provides. It also was a representative of protection. What happened for the ancient Israelites as they exited from Egypt, this pillar of smoke guided them. But they came to the point where the Red Sea was in front of them and the Pharaoh of army was behind them and they were trapped. God parts the Red Sea, but before he parts the Red Sea, something else happens. Is that the Shekinah glory, the light, protects the people of God. Here's what happens. Chapter 14, verse 19. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night long. What didn't come near the other is that on one side of this wall of fire, this wall of smoke, was light. On the other side was darkness. And the wall, the Shekinah glory, the glory was there. This was the light that protected them. And even though it was a light protected them, to the Egyptians, they were covered in darkness even when, even when daybreak continued. It continued for the people of God that it was this symbol of light, God's presence, that he was the one who protects them. 
that he is the one who, that yes, even though there is still evil in the world, and even though tragedies still occur, and even though there is still hardship, that there is indeed a sovereign God who is the light of the world, who works all things for our good and for his glory. There is a sovereign God who says, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for a well-being. Plans for flourishing and a future. The light symboled the protection. And it also symboled the very presence of God. Is that when the fire was upon it, it symbolized that the presence of God was there. And so what happens in the Old Testament history is that when they set out and the tabernacle was established, down comes the cloud, down comes the fire, and it guides the people through the wilderness. After they move into Israel, after some time, actually guides them in the wilderness. They go to Mount Sinai, where the giving of the Ten Commandments is, and what happens? Down comes the Shekinah glory, covers the mountains, covers the thick smoke, the earth quakes, the trumpets blow, and people can't see because it's surrounded by the presence of God. They move into Israel, and after they're there some time, um, God commands Solomon to build a temple. Solomon builds a great temple, and at the dedication of the temple, which 1 Kings chapter 8 tells us, is that the Shekinah glory descends again, <laughs> comes down on the temple, fills the temple so much that nobody can see, nobody can do anything because they are just surrounded by this gigantic cloud in the presence of God. As the history of Israel continued, Israel had this roller coaster relationship with God, where they would wander away from God and then God would deliver them and he'd draw them back to himself. And then they'd wander away from God, and God would deliver them, and then he'd draw them back to himself. And then they would wander away from God, and God would deliver them, and then he'd draw them back to himself. And this occurred hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. Well, in the midst of that, the prophet Ezekiel comes to the people of God, and he says, and he gives them a vision. And he says, this is what the Lord says. He says, Ichabod. Ichabod which means the glory has left. The glory has left. And he has a vision for the people of God of the very presence of God and the glory of God leaving the temple. So, people of God continue to disobey. Judgment comes upon them. They are conquered and they are sent into exile. God promises that after 70 years he will restore them. They come back, they rebuild the city walls, and after some time they rebuild the temple. And this is called the second temple. The temple is rebuilt. They have a gigantic feast. They have a gigantic a dedication of the temple. And everyone is gathered together because the people have repented and they have reconstituted the temple. And they know the story that in the wilderness, down comes the Shekinah glory when they're, when the, with the tabernacle. At Mount Sinai, down comes the Shekinah glory, covers the people. The dedication of the temple, they know. Down comes the Shekinah glory, fills the temple. They gather themselves together, and they dedicate the temple, and guess what happens? Nothing. Silence. A silence that is deafening. The glory of God has not returned. And so the people of Israel, in this festival, in lighting the temple and the illumination of the temple, signifying that God is the one who, he is the light that gives them their path, the light that gives them their protection, but also that he is the light who is the very presence of God. 
And they participated in this illumination of the temple to remember that God is the one who guided them and that they are longing, that they are longing for the presence of God and for the glory of God to return. So they had this festival remembering what God has done, but as a great longing that the glory of God and the presence of God and the Shekinah glory would return. And it's from that, that is why they on a nightly basis would relight the temple. Because it was the light that guided their path, the light that gave them protection, the light that was the presence of God. But we live in a society, we swim in waters that follows another light. We swim in waters that seeks to find it in other ways. What's happened in Western society is that you know, starting way back with the Greek philosophers, what happened is that the Greek philosophers taught that the material world was the material world, the physical body was, it was subordinate to the spiritual world. Um, it was unimportant even. It was unreal. They also taught that the physical world was fickle, that it was unreliable, that it was inconsistent, and that it was chaotic. Christianity came along and said, no. The material world is good, and it's not just good, it is very good. And because there is a creator God who is faithful, who is loving, and who is steadfast, because there is a creator God who created the world, what that means is that the material world is dependable. That the material world, that there is an objective reality, and that the material world can be investigated and understood. What modern society has done, however, is that they have amplified this uniquely Christian teaching, which was not present in any other religion around the world. They have amplified this Christian teaching and has said that the natural world is the only reality that there is. That the natural material and material world is all that exists. There is nothing else. Therefore, everything has a physical cause and has a physical explanation including love, including morality. All of these things are just biochemical reactions that have happened by chance in order to uh, fuel the next cycle of natural selection. And because the natural world is all that there is, material prosperity is the only prosperity that exists. And so accordingly, that which provides a, a light, that which provides a path to a better life, that which provides the path to knowledge and truth, that which provides for protection, for security, that which provides a future is not outside of the individual, but inside of the individual. It's not trusting in the plans of a sovereign God and submitting yourselves to the plans of the sovereign God. It is saying, I am the master of my fate. I am the master of my own destiny. Because I am the one that determines it, because the natural world is the only world that there is, and there is no other reality out there, it is only occurs within here. And in terms of a light, in terms of you know, being the presence of God, you, you know, this light provides you know, the path, it provides you know, this aspect of protection, but the presence of God, I mean, I mean, that's just an excuse for people to abuse power. That's just an excuse for people to oppress others. And at best, it is this a misguided quest for self-actualization so someone could realize the full potential that they have within themselves. But because the natural physical world is all that there is, 
any sort of meaning or significance, any sort of light that would guide, protect, cannot come from outside the individual, but within the individual. It cannot come from outside the mind, but within the mind. It can only come and be achieved and experienced through the capacity and the proficiency to reason. After all, I think, therefore I am. That what defines my existence is not something outside of me. It is something inside of me. History has a name for this period. This period is called, not accidentally, the Enlightenment. That reason is the light that will lead you on the path to knowledge and truth, the path to protection, the path to self-actualization. And of course, with the Enlightenment, you know, there's many benefits from it. I mean, God used the Enlightenment to rescue Christianity from, a, from an intellectual laziness where people had started attributing everything to divine mystery when God himself had given general revelation, had, had explained in the way that he built the world and had created the world for humans to investigate, to understand, to cultivate, and to subdue. And God used the enlightenment to rescue Christianity from this intellectual, this intellectual laziness. But the problem with it, though, is this. Is that if you operate on the blind faith assertion that the material world is all that there is, which is nothing other than just a, a, a universal claim without basis. It's just an assertion. If you operate on the bald assertion that the material world is all that there is, and that everything can be explained by natural means, then if, if there is a bigger reality, if there is a spiritual world, if there is a creator God who you cannot see, if that exists, then your blind faith commitment that everything can be explained by natural means cannot lead you to the truth, but will only lead you away from the truth. Because you have a bald assertion that the material world is all that there is. And if that is your commitment, it will not lead you to it, but it will lead you from the truth. What happens is that when reason which is a God-given gift that he's given to us that we should use. When it becomes elevated and be, to be equal with the revelation of Jesus Christ, what happens is that Christianity has just become some subsumed and interpreted through the waters of the Western context of reality. So what happens? Well, it is indeed on the last night of the feast when night after night they have had this great illumination. Like the last night of, of the feast, they do not light the candles on the last night. Why? Well, it's because it's kind of like a Christmas party, right? I mean, at the last day, I mean, when do you start to take down the Christmas decorations? Well, as soon as the guest leaves for a lot of people, right? And so on the last night of the feast, they, didn't, they don't light, light the candles because everyone's going away and everyone's taking down the decorations. But it is on this last day of the feast, standing in the treasury standing in front of these gigantic candelabras, which are now just burnt and seared wicks sticking out of the top of them. These candelabras that symbolize the missing presence of God, the missing glory of God that had not yet returned, 
Jesus stands up in the treasury, surrounded by these candelabras, and he says, Jesus spoke to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, I am the light of your path. I am, I, you followed God through the fire in the wilderness. I am the fire who guided you. You followed the fire, you followed the light for the path to bring you to life abundant, to know where to go and when to go. It. You follow the light for knowledge and truth. I am the light. And it's not just for you, but for the whole world. I am the light of the world. That salvation would extend to the ends of the earth. Just as Jerusalem on top of this hill would shine forth and could be seen from great distances, Jesus is saying, I am the light for the entire world, not just for the Jews, but for the whole world. I am the path. I am the light of the path. And I am also the one that gives you protection. I am the one who defeats sin, death, and the devil. And it is my spirit is the one who works all things. For good, for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. And I am the presence of God that you have worshipped. I am the Shekinah glory that you have hoped and longed but would return. I am the light of the world in every way. And I'm standing before you in the temple. If you're one who is... Living in this dark world, Jesus is the answer in every way. He is the light that gives the path to knowledge and truth and to life eternal and life abundant. He is the guide. He is the protector. He is the presence and the glory of God, whereas before the the fire of God's glory was surrounded by a cloud that people could see it, here the the Shekinah glory is surrounded by the flesh of Jesus Christ so that we could interact with him. And maybe you're here and you're one who's been confused about what is the light. Maybe you're one that you have locked yourself in the assertion that this material world is all that there is. Maybe you've begun to recognize that such a fundamentalistic devotion has not led you into the truth and into the light, but has only led you from it. And what Christianity does And the invitation is Jesus, is that you would come and meet a person. That you would meet not a philosophy, not a recipe for life, not a rule book for living, but that you would come and meet a person. A person who is the cosmic person, who is God himself, that you would meet the light of the world who is Jesus Christ. And here's what he promises. That if you come to Jesus, if you believe in the light of the world, what he says is that whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. It means that if you're following Jesus, you're not going to stumble. You're not going to be confused. You're not going to be afraid of the dark because you have a light that is going before you. It means to follow Jesus means like the people in the wilderness, that when he lifts up, you go. When he puts down, you stay. Whether it's for a day, a week, a month, however long. That you submit yourself to the lordship of Christ, for he is the boss, he is the Lord, he is the one that calls the shots, he is the one that you are following, not him following you. And so Jesus says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. You know, if you're going to the 
bathroom in the middle of the night, and it's pitch dark. I mean, the smallest obstacle becomes a huge obstruction. I mean, the smallest of those little nasty green army men can cause you to stumble and crumple to the ground. But just even a little bit of life, a little bit of light, allows you to see, to give you a path that you would have truth and knowledge about your environment and your surroundings. You see, if you are not in the light of Jesus Christ, what happens is that small obstacles that should not be a problem become huge obstructions. But with the light of Jesus, you are enabled to make your way through the darkness as you follow the light who guides you. And there is a sobering reality that Jesus identifies. He says, you know, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. But notice the Pharisee's response. So the Pharisee said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. What happens is that if you reject the light of the world, if you preclude the possibility of the light of the world, what happens is that Jesus himself becomes darkness to you. Here are the Pharisees who've supposedly been teaching people to long for the light of the world, and the light of the world is standing before them, and they don't see it. All they see is darkness. If you preclude or reject the light of the world, he becomes darkness to you. Hugh Hefner was raised in the minister's home. Joseph Stalin studied for the priesthood. Mao Zedong was raised under missionary teaching. Light became darkness. And to follow Jesus, to know the light of the world, requires that you put your reason, that you submit your reason, and you submit your will, and you submit your life under the lordship of Christ, and you follow him. And that what he says, you do. Because you are following him, not him following you. Jesus goes on to say, finally, that those who follow me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. They have it. They will actually possess it. That it'll actually, the light of life will actually indwell them. He says it's the light of the world, but he says you will have the light of life. In you will be the, the light that gives life. Not just existence, but life, abundance that you would be alive for others, that this light would dwell within you so that the light would shine to the ends of the earth. This should sound really familiar to what we examined last week, where Jesus says to them that whoever believes in me will have rivers of living water flowing out of me. It's flowing to the ends of the earth, and John says that this is the Holy Spirit, that flowing out of them are rivers of life, rivers of living water, so that salvation would extend to the earth. And Jesus says, you will have the light of life, that you will have it, that you, will, you yourself will possess it. It's a theme that Jesus touches on many times, the New Testament touches on many times. He says, you are the light of the world. 
Why? Because it's now indwelling within you. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. What is that city that he's referring to? He's referring to Jerusalem being illuminated at light, at nighttime, being able to be seen from great distances. And he says, you are the light of the world. A city set in the hill cannot be hidden. Philippians chapter 2, he explains our relationship to the world in which we swim. The relationship of light to darkness. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. That your light would be visible. That it would be noticeable. That others would see it. That your light would shine so that those who are wandering in darkness may turn from the darkness to light may turn from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in his name. Do you get a vision of what God is doing? Do you get a picture of the way that God has determined to bring his salvation to the ends of the earth? Is that Jesus is the light of the world, but he takes that light and he puts it in you so that in you, you would be the light that extends across the globe, across southern Maryland, across your workplace, across your neighborhood, and to places like Jakarta and Japan, and across the globe, that you would be the light of the world that others might know the salvation of our God and be drawn to the one true light who is the one and only Jesus Christ. He is the light of the world. He is the light of our path, our protection, He is the light who is the presence of God. And if you are in Christ, you have the light of life. And it is ours to shine to the ends of the earth. Let's pray together. Father, I praise you that your word is so rich, so true, so profound and full. Lord, I thank you that Lord, I bet for many of us we have read these passages about the Feast of Booths of Living Water and that you're the light of the world. And we just compared you to a flashlight. But Lord Jesus, you are so much more. You are the glory of God. You are the light who is our path, our protection. You are the very presence of God. And Lord, would you, Spirit, work in us that we would follow you. That where you go, we go. Where you don't go, we don't go. And Lord, that you would put within us the light of life and that we would not hide it under a bushel. But Lord, that your light would shine and it would shine brightly. That your salvation would extend to the farthest places and to even to those who are walking in the darkest of nights. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.